Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Glad that you're here as we study Revelation. We're into week number 15, chapter number 14 of Revelation. So we are glad that you've joined us. Everyone joining us online, we welcome you also. Glad that you're here and looking forward to what uh, God is going to speak to us through tonight. So uh, turn in your Bibles, chapter 14, 20 verses there that we will look at and looking forward to what, uh, what God says to us. So let's pray together. We'll get started. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for how you speak to us. God, just uh, uh, showing us through this powerful book what's going to happen. The Lord, that you're the ultimate victor and that you're the one that will control everything in the, in the final end. And God, we just trust you whenever that time is. And we thank you for Jesus, all that he's done and who that he is. And we just pray tonight the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, whether we're here in person, whether we're online, whether we're listening to this uh, even days from now, I just pray that whenever uh, your presence is, will be here in a special way, whenever we preach your word and teach your word. So, Father, tonight, teach us from Revelation 14. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, it is time for uh, the midterm pop quiz. So get out your pencils and paper and uh, 10 questions we have. No, just teasing. You can just answer them verbally if you want. What is the Greek word for revelation? Apocalypse or apocalypsis, exactly right. And what does it mean? It means to unveil. Something that's previously hidden has been now made known. So it's an unveiling. Who wrote revelation? John. Yeah, you all got that one, yeah. So you got one out of ten, so that's good. When did he write it? Around 90 A.D., absolutely right. So um, to whom did he write? Seven churches of Asia Minor. Those churches are located in the country of Turkey today. Absolutely. What are the seven? Name them. Ephesus. I heard that one. Smyrna. Good. Pergamum. Thyatira. Good. Sardis. Two more. Laodicea. Philadelphia. That's very good. Very good. What is exegesis? means to draw out. That's exactly right. What's eisegesis? Read into. So we're to draw out from Scripture, exegete Scripture, not read into Scripture and eisegete. That's so important, especially in Revelation. Reading in something that's not there, what you think may be there, but actually taking the passage and exegeting what is there. How many sealed judgments were there? Seven. That's right. How many trumpet judgments? Seven, very good. And how long is the tribulation? Seven years. There you go. The number seven, very prominent in Revelation. So I think you passed. I think everybody passed. That's good. So that is our midterm quiz. We're getting close to just over halfway uh, into the book and a good summary. So let me now look at uh, a summary that, uh, that as to where we've been since then, the last few chapters. Letter A on your outline tonight. Let's look at a summary. Uh, for the last 42 months, the world reeled from a series of catastrophic events, 42 months, of course, being three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. The world is reeling from catastrophic events that are threatening the very existence of the world. This is what's going to happen in the tribulation. Then a dictator comes along, gains the reins of global power, and for one dramatic moment, everybody thinks 
that he will be assassinated. But the enemy gave him the power to stage a resurrection, or will do this, stage a resurrection. He will be supercharged with satanic evil, and the world is going to be mesmerized by this beast or the Antichrist. So now with worldwide fame and the fury of Satan behind him, he takes control. Everybody thinks he's going to think he's wonderful. And he's going to order an image of himself to be erected and demand that the entire world worship the image. It's going to be the mark. You'll have to take the mark of the beast in order to, to, uh, to, uh, make, to show that you have, have worshipped the image. Well, that's going to appall two belief systems, Jews and Christians. That's two-thirds of the belief systems around the world, right? So they're going to be appalled by this, that they'll not want to take the mark of the beast. And so Jews are going to begin fleeing to a safer spot in the, in the wilderness, most likely of Jordan. A lot of people think Petra. And the devil is going to be angry at their fleeing. So the beast is going to pursue them, but is going to fail. Because he failed, he's going to get even angrier. He's going to form a fake trinity, an unholy alliance. Whereas the real trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he's going to form a fake trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And full of evil and vitriol, he's going to have a thirst for blood. And he, was, it will, he will determine to kill every last Jew and every last Christian on the planet. And he'll want to get rid of every vestige of God on earth so his twisted trinity can be the Lord of the earth. And that's where we've gotten so far. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So starting in chapter 14, now we're starting to prepare to understand the remaining judgments that will come in the final part of the tribulation before Jesus comes back in chapter 19. So we're getting closer. We're to chapter 14. Jesus will return in chapter 19. So 14 begins to look forward to that day whenever the beast is chained for good and his power will be gone. So two questions are asked in chapter 14. First question is, answered in verses 1 through 5, what happens to those people who will refuse to take the mark of the beast? What's going to happen to them? And the second question, verses 6 through 20, what is going to happen to the beast and all the people who serve him? We're going to see what happens to the beast. So let's look tonight, chapter 14, let's begin letter B on your outline the Lamb and the 144,000, verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now let's stop there for a moment. John looks into and he sees a scene and he sees the Lamb come down and stand on Mount Zion. Now, this isn't going to happen until Revelation 19. So,
So he's looking five chapters into the future. But I want you to notice something. Notice where the lamb's standing. Mount Zion, it's a rock. The last chapter, the beast came out of the ocean. Where did it say he stood? On the shore, the sand. So the beast stands on the sand, and Jesus stands on the rock. What did Jesus say about the rock and the sand whenever he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount? Those that build their foundations on the sand will be swept away, and those that build the foundation on the rock will stand. And so you see that imagery even right here in chapter 13, chapter 14. He looks and he sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, where is Mount Zion? Well, those of you who've been to Israel with us, you, you stood on it yourself. It's, a, it's the cross the Kidron Valley. Here's Israel, the Dome of the Rock. You cross the Kidron Valley. You go up the incline. It's full of trees over there. The Garden of Gethsemane is there. That's Mount Zion. And so, at the end time, we're going to see Jesus come back and stand on Mount Zion. Now, whenever he does, in verse 14, is this literal or is it symbolic? Or is it a heavenly Mount Zion? It could be any one of the three. So let's talk about the theories as to where this one is. There are some people that say that he's talking here about the literal Mount Zion east of Jerusalem. And there are a lot of people that believe that in this passage he was actually standing there with the 144,000. Now, remember, who's the 144,000? Those are the Jews that are going to be saved during the tribulation time. So he's standing there with those who have been saved. So John's seeing a vision of the future where he's physically, literally standing there. It's one theory. Second theory is that it's not the earthly Mount Zion, it's the heavenly Mount Zion. Because there's going to be a heavenly Mount Zion. Uh, heaven is referred to as Mount Zion. Galatians 4.26 talks about it being a, the new Jerusalem is going to be a free Jerusalem, the, the Mount Zion. And so if it's a heavenly Mount Zion, and John only sees 144,000 there, then does that mean there will only be 144,000 in heaven? That's what the Jehovah Witnesses say. So people say, well, where do the Jehovah Witnesses get? There are only going to be 144,000 in heaven. Right here. They take it as the heavenly Mount Zion, not the earthly one. Here's a third theory. Literal, symbolic. Uh, here's a third one, the heavenly. Here's a third one is that it's a symbol for strength, which Mount Zion always was a symbol for strength. So some people say, well, it's not to be taken literally as Mount Zion or heavenly as Mount Zion. It's just a symbol that they're going to see that finally these 144,000 are going to be strengthened. So it is a symbol for strength. Well, we don't know which one it is. I, I don't know what, you know, this is just for what it's worth. My, I, I, it looks to me like a literal, to me, uh, 
uh, translation, it, it, literally Mount Zion in east of Jerusalem. Remember one of our principles of interpreting Revelation, if a passage can be taken literally, take it literally. Unless it's obviously symbolic. This doesn't look obviously symbolic. So I, I take it to be a literal standing there literally on Mount Zion. Now the 144,000 that are with him, they were the ones that were, had his name on their foreheads. We talked about that earlier. The beast will put the 666 or, or name, his name on, on the foreheads of those that aren't believers, whereas these believers will have the Heavenly Father's name on there. So they're protected from God's judgment that's coming later in chapter 14, but they will not be protected from the beast's judgment. So they're going to have to go through all the fury the beast throws at them during this tribulation time. But God has sealed them for later on. They'll not face his judgment, nor will we who are in Christ. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven. Whose voice was this? Uh, Christ? Well, we're not told. An angel? The martyrs? Whose, whose voice is it? We're not told. It just says, a voice came from heaven. And it sounded like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. So what really struck John about the voice was not what it said, but what it sounded like. That's what he, he didn't say, and it said this. He said, uh, the first thing I noticed was, was what it sounded like. It sounded like just roaring waters and, and sounded like loud peals of thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. We uh, have the image, and we always have, you know, of heavens playing harps, and that's one of the places that we get that. It's more than that, but that was the sound that he heard. Verse 3, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now it sounds like they are in heaven, doesn't it? Now, they were singing a new song. In the Old Testament, the phrase new song to the Lord is mentioned several times. Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 144, Psalm 149, Isaiah 42, and it says a new song was sung to the Lord, and it was always praise. So we're hearing praise. And the 144,000 are strengthened by the praise. They have new power. They have new might. So whenever you praise the Lord, who does it help? You. Well, preacher, I, you know, I had a rough week. I just don't feel like praising the Lord tonight. You're the, it's your loss. Whenever you praise, you're the one that has new strength. The new song he heard in heaven, and they were strengthened with new might. 
and with new power. Verse 4, it is these, talking about the 144, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. What on earth is that talking about? What does that mean? Well, again, it could several theories here. One theory is that it literally meant they did not defile themselves by having premarital sex while they were here on earth during that time because Paul, Paul's admonition, 1 Corinthians, was that believers should not be engaged in that. Some say literally. Others say, no, he's talking figuratively because that meant they were remained faithful to Christ. Defiling themselves with women was a metaphor, what a lot of people say, for not taking the mark of the beast. They stayed true to Christ. They stayed faithful to the bride. And that's very possible. One translation translates this, they kept themselves pure spiritually. So it could be spiritual. It could be figurative rather than literally. And the word defile there that's used is used elsewhere in John to reference cult prostitutes. Now, what were cult prostitutes? Back in biblical times, uh, whenever they would worship the gods, the Greek gods, they would go to worship, they would have prostitutes there, and so the worshipers, as they would come, would grab a prostitute and have sex with them as a part of the worship service. And they did that for a couple of reasons. One, it was an offering to the gods, the Greek gods, who, who secondly, they thought were the gods of fertility that your crops would grow, that you would have a good, that you would, everything, you'd have food. And so they felt like a part of the worship service was the prostitution that took place. Of course, Scripture condemned that and called it a defilement and that Christians were not supposed to have that as a part of their worship services. That God is the God of, that gives you the, the increase of the land. He's the one that does that. Not that you're sacrificing to anyone else to do that. So the word defile here is the exact same word that condemned the cult prostitutes back early in the New Testament. So we don't really know. Was it, was it actually con commending them that they did not have sex in, during this tribulation time physically or was it a spiritual um, uh, symbolic say, a way of saying that they, were, they remained pure to the Lord Jesus Christ during this time? But continue on verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. What a beautiful picture of saved people, right? Jesus leads and you follow. He's the, he is the Lamb, you're, you're following the Lamb. And whenever you start trying to go out on your own is when you get in trouble, start stopping from following the Lamb. Beautiful picture there. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed for mankind, verse 4, as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Stop there for a minute. The saved were first fruits given to the Lord. What were the first fruits? Well, if you remember the Old Testament, God told his people, whenever you have increase, whether it's financial, whether it's crops, whatever it is, you bring the very first of that, the best of it, and give it to the Lord. If you have a flock 
you find the best of the flock and you give it to God as an offering, a first fruits offering. We take that today in the New Testament further as the tithe. We are to give the first of our increase, the first of our paycheck, the first of everything we get. The first of it goes to God because it's our first fruits. He deserves that. And so it started in the Old Testament, but now let's go further. Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead, what Paul called it the first fruits of the resurrection? Which meant the first fruit in the Old Testament was you give God the first 10%, he's going to bless you with the 90%. That was the principle. So we tithe today with the same principle. We give him 10%, that means the other 90% is going to be blessed of God and going to go further. So Jesus, as the first fruits of the resurrection, means that we will follow. Since he resurrected, we will as well if we're believers. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. And so now in heaven, John sees these believers being presented to God and Jesus as first fruits. And other believers we will follow. Beautiful how the scripture, all the way from Old Testament to New Testament, to Jesus, to Paul, to Revelation, has the same theme all the way through. And he looked and they were first fruits for God and the Lamb. Verse 5, and in their mouth, still talking about the 144,000, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now think about this. Where had the 144,000 been for the last seven years? It was tribulation. A time when deception and untruth was so rampant that the world followed untruth. So rampant that even the very elect might follow untruth. That's you and me. So convincing untruth was that would be tempted to follow it, but they didn't. And God commended them because they did not know lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. They did not follow deception. They did not follow untruth. Folks, I know, I know in our world, it's, it's pretty unpopular now for you and I to speak truth. I know that. But we must keep speaking it. And we must keep believing it. And we must keep living it. Because when it all wraps up and it all ends, we will be commended if there's no lie found in us. No, that we'll be found blameless. So you and I need to hold to the truth of God's Word. Doesn't matter how angry people get. Doesn't matter how many groups march. We, we must stay true to what God has told us in His Word. We must stay true to truth. And so I hope that you'll do that. I hope I will do that. And, and, and because at the very end... They were commended because no lie was found in them. Always stay with truth and always preach truth, speak truth, and live the truth of God's Word. Now, let's go to letter C on your outline, the messages of the three angels, verses 6 through 13. The rest of the chapter now of 14 uh, ends with four climactic announcements. I've never found the announcement time of a worship service to be real exciting. Have you? 
But here are four climactic announcements God's going to make at the end, and they're going to be good. Three of them are made by angels. The last one, the fourth one, is made by a voice from heaven. We don't know if it's God. We're not told if it's an angel. Just a voice. We don't know who it is. But that's the fourth one. So let's look at them. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So, at the end, toward the last of the tribulation, there will be an angel that crisscrosses the earth proclaiming the gospel. He's going to be preaching. And everybody's going to hear. Everybody's going to hear how to be saved. My question is, why didn't God do that from the beginning? Why didn't, after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, rather than giving 12 guys the responsibility to tell that gospel all of the whole world, why didn't he just send an angel? Do it right then. It's not the method he chose. The method he chose until the angel starts doing that is for you to do it and me to do it. It's our task. We share the Great Commission. We share the good news. We are the ones. He's entrusted the gospel to us. So we're the ones that tell it right now. One day at the end, an angel will crisscross the earth and he will proclaim the eternal gospel to everyone that's left. Every tribe, every nation, every language, every people. You're going to hear from an angel. Now how's he going to do this? A loud megaphone, how's it going to happen? Well, that's where a lot of people start to eisegete. And there are some people that believe it's going to happen that the word flying overhead is symbolic for technology. So through technology, an angel is going to get the message out to everybody around the world that the gospel is through Jesus, salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We, we don't know that. So if you read that or hear that, yeah, it's going to be technology. The whole world's going to hear through technology. That's where they get that from, the angel flying overhead. But we're not really told that. That's a little eisegesis taking place there. We're not really told that. All we're told is angel flying overhead, crisscrossing the globe, sharing the gospel. Verse 7. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, let me stop there for a moment. This is what, we know what the angel's going to say. We, we, hit, we have it. Every person left on earth, remember they've gone through the tribulation, they're worshiping the beast, they're, they're taking the 666, they're anti-God. So the ones that are left on the planet are going to be those that do not believe in God. And they hear the word and the, the gospel, and, and what they are told is, fear God. 
You know, we're living in a day where the fear of God is getting less and less, isn't it? And by the time the revelation's over, it won't be much at all. They're going to follow the beast. They don't fear God. They, they, they fear the beast. And so the number one message they're going to hear is, you need to fear God. God is the one that's going to bring judgment upon you, not the beast. In fact, the beast is going to be chained. We're going to see that in a moment. Fear God. Give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him. So they're told to fear Him and worship Him. And notice what He appeals to. Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. If, if I'm going to make an appeal to a lost person, I'm probably going to talk about the cross. But when the angel made the appeal, he talked about God creator. Did you notice that? Creator. He, he appealed for everyone to be saved by what's called natural revelation, not special revelation. The theology, they talk about natural revelation spirit, and, and special revelation. Natural revelation, everything we see of God through nature. You can look at trees, you can look at the design, you can look at the seasons, you can look at everything around us and tell that there's a designer. Special revelation is where God specially came down in the form of Jesus. So, special revelation, I tend to go to special revelation. The angel goes to natural revelation. Saying to everybody left, you can look around you and there's enough around you to tell you there's a God who loves you, who designed, who created. You remember Paul said that Romans 1, didn't he? He said there's enough around you in nature so that you're without excuse. Nature will point you to a God. So you're without excuse. And so the angel's message was, look around you. There's enough there to point you to God. Then the second announcement, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So there's, there's, a, there's the sexual immorality being the image to worship. So it could be spiritual, the virgins earlier. But now notice something about the message about fallen Fallen is Babylon. What's interesting is the loud voice that, that, uh, that came out. Speaking about Babylon, now who's Babylon? Babylon hasn't been prominent by now for centuries. Who's Babylon? Of course Babylon's fallen. It fell back in the Old Testament. So it has to be symbolic. Can't be talking about the physical Babylon. It's not there. So we know this passage has to be symbolic because you can't take it literally. So, who's Babylon? At the end of the tribulation, Babylon's going to fall. Who is it? Well, let's think through it. Babylon is a code word, obviously, because Babylon is not there physically. So it's a code word. So, some believe it was a code word for the Roman Empire that was persecuting Christians. Remember now, John wrote Revelation to seven churches that are going through intense persecution by the Roman Empire, 
And it was a code word to say, you seven churches, hang in there because the Roman Empire is going to fall and you're going you're gonna to succeed. Maybe. Maybe so. Others believe it was a code word for Rome. What's in Rome? The Vatican. Some people believe it's a code word for the Roman Catholic Church will fall at the end. Maybe. Others believe, and, and I, I tend to think this may be the case, and again, I, I, we don't know for certain, because we're not told, we're just told Babylon. Some believe there will be a literal setting up again of a physical Babylon near where the old Babylon was. If that's true, and there seems to be indications to point toward that, that the old Roman Empire will be reestablished and the old Babylon will be reestablished. Where was Babylon? Where, where would it be today? 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. That's where it was. So there are a lot of Bible scholars who believe that the Antichrist will set up headquarters near Baghdad. Will he be Iraqi? We don't know. Will he be Muslim? We don't know. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of Bible scholars think that he could be and he, he may be Muslim. But if you think about Baghdad and that area right through there, it's an ideal location for any kind of international headquarters. It's near some of the world's richest oil reserves. Uh, it's near the geographical center of the world's land masses. It literally is where it crisscrosses three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. You have navigable distances of the Persian Gulf. You have no better location for a world trade center. You have no better location for a world communication center, a world banking center, a world education center. You have no better location for the world, world capital. And it's surrounded by Islamic states who are against Christ. So some people say a, as a literal Babylon will be in the in this tribulation be set up. The Antichrist will have a headquarters, some believe, and Babylon, it will fall at the end of the tribulation. Others have speculated not Baghdad, they've speculated Dubai, they've speculated Co Kuwait City, and Istanbul are the main cities that are speculated because they all fit the pattern of what's talking about as the new Babylon, Babylon, Babylon has fallen. And she who made all the nations, so it's going to be a place that controls all the nations, made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, made all the nations worship her. It's the Antichrist making all the nations worship. But at the end will fall. Now go to the third angel, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on the forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment, verse 11, goes up forever and ever 
and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name that's hell isn't it it's a description of hell let's look at it some interesting things that are said there verse 9 the angel said okay it's time it's time for the beast and all of his followers to be cast into hell the judgments come so God's wrath will be poured out intensely upon hell now the words the word wrath and anger are mentioned both together did you notice in verse verses 9 and 10 not just God's wrath not just God's anger but they're both together that intensifies it we have never known God's wrath and anger like that before is God's been angry in the Old Testament God's been angry in the New Testament but never ever have we experienced God's anger anger and wrath together the word the word wrath or rather uh, uh, anger is orge that's the usual word for anger but here the word thymos is used thymos is only used that means passionate anger that means that means so mad you're so mad you're red in the face and it's only used 11 times in scripture 10 of them in revelation concerning god's anger hell will be a place where god does not dilute his punishment it comes full force and it says they will be tormented who are there fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb now notice something here notice the trail of smoke the constant misery they're going to be they're going to it will follow them in the presence of the lord in the presence of the angels in the presence of the lamb forever so in heaven we see ceaseless praise of god forever and in hell we see eternal punishment forever his wrath his indignation forever the word forever literally means into the ages and the ages and the ages and the ages and the ages his wrath dr thomas um theologian a great theologian many years used to say verse 11 is the most horrible picture of hell in revelation let's read it again the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever they have no rest they are not worshipers of the beast its image and whoever receives the mark of its name so this shows us folks that hell is real hell is torment it's painful it's repulsive i i know i know we live in a culture today that doesn't believe in hell every year when gallup polls are taken fewer americans believe in hell they believe in heaven fewer americans believe in hell. it's down to 39 percent now fewer and fewer and fewer people are believing in fact i just saw something posted on facebook yesterday and one of the skeptics saying oh yeah I, I, okay if i don't believe in god i'm going to he's going to punish me in this place with his fire and yeah that just doesn't you know, you're making fun of hell that's our culture i don't believe it anymore but the lamb the third angel rather tells us it's true and so we need to continue to believe it but i want you to notice something about hell it says 
in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Wait a minute. Is Jesus going to be present in hell? I, I, thought, I thought hell was a place absent of God's presence. Well, he's present there in the form of punishment. And he's present there in the form of judgment. And he's present there in the form of wrath. In fact, they wished he wouldn't be present there anymore. Because it's his indignation and his wrath. The old reformed preacher back in the 1800s, Dr. John Trapp, used to say, we need to talk more about verse 11. And we do, don't we? We need to talk more about it. We need to believe it more. We, that needs to be part of our message. Folks, those that don't follow Christ have hell to wait. They have hell to come. In verses 10 and 11, powerful pictures of what's going to happen to non-believers. Now look at verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds follow them. Wow, what a juxtaposition we go from verses 11 and 12 of hell and how horrible to, 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 to 12 and 13 and 14 and beyond and to heaven and how blissful. There's a huge difference between, a, between being a believer and an unbeliever in the final day. So now let's go to the harvest of the earth, verses 14 to 20. Letter D on your outline, the harvest of the earth. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. What was a sickle for? Well, it was for harvesting, right? They harvested with a sickle. They also used it as a weapon. Israelites used their sickles as weapons. You could, you could stab. You could go from one to the next. You could, it was, you could use it very quickly. So the work will be done quickly. You remember Matthew 13, 39, Jesus said, The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are his angels. So he's talking about the harvest to come. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple. Here's the fourth one. Calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So here's the picture. The angels tell us what hell's like. The angels tell us what heaven's like. And then the last one says, okay, you know, you know what they're like. It's showtime. It is time for the earth to be reaped. The sickle's out. The harvest is here. And it's time to reap. Verse 15, in fact, it says that it, said it is ripe. Did you know that the earth is fully ripe? The word ripe there literally means overripe, rotten. Hosea 6 said the day would come that the earth is ripe for judgment. Joel 3 says the day will come when the earth is ripe for judgment. Jeremiah 51 said the day will come when the earth is rotten 
ready for judgment. All three prophets said it, and here it is at the end, the judgment. And then notice the last thing, verses 17 to 20, we'll close with this. Then the angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are rotten. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. What you're, what you're reading about is Armageddon. We'll talk about that in chapters to come. But the angel tells us about the harvest time whenever the world is going to be destroyed. And since the city escapes wrath and not Babylon, you see it here. 1,600 stadia. How far is that? 200 miles. Now, in biblical times, battles usually extended 20 miles. That's all. But the Valley of Armageddon, 200 miles. Where is 200 miles from the Valley of Armageddon? Down to the Dead Sea. Israel, uh, Jerusalem's about 80 miles or so from the Valley of Armageddon. So what you're going to have here is war that extends 1600, about 200 miles. That's the full length of Israel going down toward Egypt. And you're going to have blood that flows up to, the, up to the horse's bridle. It could be that if that's literal, then that's literally five to six feet, or it could be blood that splatters for up to five to six feet in battles that are going to be so bloody, the worst. Armageddon's going to be the bloodiest battle that the world's ever known. So if it's literal, it will literally flow to the Dead Sea. But let me, let me ask you, if you, as you read this, let me read verse 20 and see if you can think of a song it reminds you of. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. They have the sickles that are sharpened. Can you think of a song that sounds like? How about the battle hymn of the Republic? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage. There's the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored. The grapes of wrath that, that are ripe. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sickle sword. Our God is marching on. Yes, that hymn was written during the time of the Civil War thinking Armageddon was coming from the time of the final battle. One day, one day it will. Well, it's 7.02, so we're past time for questions or comments. If you have questions or comments, you can see me afterwards, email them to me. Really interesting what God tells us here. Next week, we're going to see seven angels and seven plagues from Revelation chapter 15. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you that in the midst of judgment, in the midst of, uh, of what's going to happen when tribulation starts to wind down, 
Father, in the midst of all of that, we know that, that those that are in Christ are safe from your judgment, from your wrath, from your anger. In Christ, Father, the wrath of God has passed us by. Praise the Lord. And so, Father, thank you for that. Give us encouragement this week to continue to stand for truth and live for truth and live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.